This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, in this week's episode, we will delve into the dynamic interplay between health economics, patient centricity, and value assessment, an intersection that holds the key to unlocking better health outcomes, improved access to care, and a sustainable healthcare system. Through all of our past episodes, we've connected with renowned experts, influential thought leaders, and passionate healthcare professionals who are spearheading innovative approaches to tackle the complex challenges in today's healthcare landscape. And our guest this week is going to take us on an exploration of how the principles of health economics can guide decision-making processes, enable us to allocate resources effectively, and maximize the value delivered to patients. Patient centricity lies at the heart of value-based care. This convergence is going to put us on the forefront of healthcare delivery. This week, we're joined by Dr. Jason Spangler, who's worked in the professional health policy and public health sector with pharmaceutical and nonprofit organizations. He's the CEO of the Innovation and Value Initiative, which is a collaboration of scientists, patient organizations, payers, life science companies, providers, and delivery systems dedicated to finding scientifically credible approaches to measuring value in healthcare. Eric, I'm really excited for this episode. This was a great conversation with Dr. Spangler. I think our listeners are really going to appreciate his perspective. Well, again, another great episode for you all on the Race to Value. We appreciate your support week in and week out by staying on top of everything that you need to know to transform your healthcare system. If you don't want to miss out on future episodes, please go to racetovalue.org forward slash newsletter. Subscribe to our weekly newsletter, and uh, we'd love a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. If you like the content and, and want to support us in that way as well. So now let's hear from Dr. Jason Spangler as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Jason, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so awesome to have you on this week. Great to be here, Eric. Thank you. Well, Jason, you know, I, I thought we would start by having our listeners understand a little bit about the work that you're doing at the IVI. You know, despite decades of investment and in patient-centered healthcare. We're all too aware that decisions about access and value are typically made in the context of financial risk management and often without the input of those who should benefit from care. In addition, there's a myriad of payment reform strategies, there's rising interest and cost effectiveness evaluation, and 
that commands a central place in the debate on how to measure and pay for high quality, efficient and equitable healthcare. And the innovation and value initiative, IVI, as I understand, provides the technical knowledge and resources and collaborative learning platform that facilitates exploration and application of these value elements and more. I mean, you do this work in partnership with patients and patient communities, researchers, and industry and purchaser stakeholders to build consensus on the scope and inputs that need to be incorporated into value assessment models. Now, a major part of your work creates learning resources in the form of open source models that allow researchers and decision makers to explore, apply, and test new methods using their own data to determine what impacts they have on considerations of value. And since the IVI has been around in, since 2017, it's published open source models that incorporate the functional capability to perform analyses on value of insurance and real option value and value of hope. So Jason, you know, can you provide our listeners with a better understanding of the innovation and value initiative? And ultimately, how is the IVI moving beyond academic rhetoric to demonstrate the relevance of open source elements that reflect real world patient experience, data and decision making that can provide this basis for scientifically credible approaches to measuring value in healthcare. Thanks again for the opportunity to, to join you guys. Yeah, as you stated, you know, the Innovation and Value Initiative is a nonprofit research organization that really focuses on the science and methodology of determining value of new medical technologies and innovations. And the point that you made is another one that I would make is and to emphasize is that you know we really try to do it from a patient-centered perspective. Historically, HTA or health technology assessment, also sometimes called value assessment in the US, you know, we use the term HTA, has not really done it from the patient perspective. It's really been from the payer's perspective because that's you know where they were coming from. They were with governments who were the payers, particularly outside the United States. And so that's the perspective they brought. And so what we've been trying to do with others over the past you know, five, 10 years has been to really bring the patient perspective into the work that we're doing. And so we do that in a multitude of ways, whether it's kind of the, the more technical work like the open source models that you raised and bringing them in from the very beginning, being part of kind of the advisory groups that we have on, on these models and these particular disease conditions that we're looking at, uh, but also on the larger kind of overarching initiatives and projects that we have, which hopefully we'll get into like our health equity initiative and our economic impacts project, et cetera. And so, so that's one area, you know, we try to bring that perspective in really from the beginning, again, because they haven't, their perspective has not been incorporated traditionally into this sort of work, particularly since it's the focus not only has been from the payers, but also has been a lot of health economics. And, you know, the, the, the researchers are the ones that have really looked at this. Um, you know, the the probably the second part of your question I'll try to address is, you know, going beyond just kind of the academic nature of this is is to have more of an impact in the real world. And so we do some of that with the tools and materials that we develop and trying to get them in stakeholders' hands, particularly our members. And we have a very diverse membership and encouraging them to, to utilize these tools, whether it's patient advocacy organizations, whether it's you know, the biopharma industry, whether it's the payer or larger purchaser community, 
in addition to the kind of the researchers that do this. Um, but also, we try to have a, an impact, you know, from the policy and in, in the policy arena as well. You know, there's been a lot going on recently in this space, but even before the Inflation Reduction Act, which I'm sure we might get into a little bit, you know, there was a lot of interest in aspects of the work that we're doing, whether it's assessing value, whether it's looking at comparative effectiveness research, whether it's doing that from the patient perspective with an organization like the Patient you know, Centered Outcomes Research Institute or PCORI. And so because that has been an interest of moving our entire healthcare system away from where it has been historically, and that's been kind of volume-based, but more towards value-based, there's been a lot of interest from a policy perspective of implementing change you know, through legislation and other types of policy. And that's another area that we're trying to impact as well, using the research, the learnings from our research and the research itself to actually try to impact and influence some of policy ch changes that are needed to change the healthcare systems to be more one that is focused on value for all the stakeholders, but particularly from the patient. Jason, thank you for that great overview. Uh, a little later in the interview, we want to engage you on specific projects conducted by the IVI, covering initiatives like that value assessment, HTA, health equity, economic impact, a little bit deeper. But before we dive into that, I really want to understand your perspective on the importance of this patient-centeredness perspective that, that you're bringing up in defining and understanding value-based care. When we hear economic terms like cost-effective analysis, medical loss ratio, budget impact, value assessment, bending the cost curve, those things are being floated around the industry, and the patient is often not at the center of those conversations. And we simply haven't done a great job of assessing value from the patient perspective. So as a national leader in value-based care, I'd love to get your take on what the word value really means to you. Value-based care will never work unless people, including patients, understand the truest aim of the movement, which is patient-centeredness. And it's not just about APMs and ACOs, and it's definitely not about rationing care like we saw with HMOs during the 90s. Care delivery within a value-based construct is really about being patient-centered. It's about relationships and tech-enabled care delivery by interdisciplinary teams with a keen emphasis on the deployment of interventions that can address social determinants and and address health equities. But even talking about VBC in that way makes it difficult to make a personal connection to the underlying purpose of the, of the movement. So can you provide your personal definition of value and how important patient centricity is to the work of the IVI? And why is patient-centeredness such a difficult concept for us to conceptualize within a health economics construct? Yeah, it's a great question. And so I'm going to give you a few definitions and I'm going to explain why I'm going to do that. So, so at the basic heart from a health economist perspective is, you know, value is simply outcomes over cost, right? You want to get some benefit or outcomes in this case, health outcomes and, you know, per the cost that, it, you know, that you have to pay to get that outcome. That's kind of the, the standard equation for, you know, what value is. But, you know, what you're asking is, I think, going beyond that. And so I'm going to take another step, you know, forward to say there are many different types of outcomes that are important to individual patients and patient communities. And so, you know, we have simply, and, I, you know, I'm a physician, so I have you know initially came to this from a provider perspective and 
you know, we're looking at health outcomes, right? How can we improve health outcomes? But there are things that are more important or more valuable to certain patients and patient communities than just their health outcomes. And so you have to incorporate those into overall outcomes as well. Uh, and then when you look at the other side of it, it's not just, you know, there are different types of cost. You know, traditionally, we've just looked at costs of well, how much does it cost to pay for that, right? And who's paying for that? And that's that's what the payer is looking at. That's a lot of times what the economist is looking at. But for the patient, there are lots of different types of costs. It might be financial costs. Um, there could be other costs around, you know, time and how, how important that is to them, right? their future and you know, what's going on in their personal lives around family and, you know, things like that. And so, so that's where I would transition from the simple equation of outcomes over cost to a, a term that you guys probably have heard of called the value flower, which is what the ISPOR, the basically the International Society of Health Economists put together. And they, again, these are researchers, but they were trying to look at it from a patient perspective and trying to develop, you know, what are the different aspects of value that are important to all of the stakeholders? And you mentioned a couple terms that are really important to the payers, right? Cost effectiveness and budget impact. But there's a whole, and those are only two of the flowers, but there's a whole bunch of other um, petals, sorry, petals of the flower that are really important to to patients, and you mentioned some of those, whether it's insurance value or real option value, value of hope. And the, those are aspects of value that we have seen research done that patients and patient communities have stated, these are really important to us. And so those are the things that we try to do is to try to nail those down. And so when, when I, let me go back to what I said previously about when we try to engage patients in the patient communities is we ask them. I mean, that, that's what you really need to do is you need to, when we say engage, it's actually ask the patients, like what is important to you at this time when it comes to this sort of intervention for this specific disease? And so, you know, what what's really important to you? Is it so that's things that we've heard about, right, that are very personal, like, you know, I want to live long enough to be at my child's wedding or a graduation or whatever, significant family events. Um, or, you know, there are things that we look at from the cost side that we may not think of. It's not necessarily a direct medical care. It's like, you know, well, I'm, I'm losing time with family or, you know, I can't afford other aspects that have nothing to do with actual medical care. I can't even afford to get transportation to, to get my medical you know, services. And so, so those are all the elements that we engage with the patients and the patient community to really find out what is important to them. And that I think that highlights another aspect of this work that's really important. And that is, and, and also where there's attention, and that is, you know, we look at cost effectiveness in general uh, about populations and averages. And, and, you know, I'm a population health guy. I think it's really important to, to treat populations, but also you have to balance that with individual patients or smaller patient communities, because there are things that are important to them that might not affect, you know, the entire population or even larger populations. And so the only way to do that is actually to, to, to talk to them, to engage with them, to really learn from their lived experiences as a patient. And that's what we try to do in kind of the processes that, that we work through. And so hopefully that answers kind of the question about being patient-centered. I think what's really hard in our healthcare system to do that is we talk a lot about the patient being at the, at the center, but I'm not sure how good we've been at actually listening to the patient and what their needs are. 
I would say, look, I'm a doctor. When I saw patients, I did that. But, you know, a lot of times I was just trying to, you know, make sure that I was improving their health from my perspective of a provider as a provider, maybe not necessarily their perspective as a patient. And then the other stakeholders that are involved, they obviously have, you know, their own priorities and, and their own um, kind of incentives that are related to those priorities. So they may not be desiring to see that from the patient perspective as well. So I think that's one of the, the major difficulties that you're asking about is why haven't we able to do that is because there's so many stakeholders engaged in this and in this healthcare system. And so it's been very difficult to just kind of focus on the patient. Um, but I think we're also getting better at doing that. And then the last thing I'll say about this is, as we've gotten better at doing that, we've actually had better data. And we know better what to do with that data. And we know how to kind of take some of this qualitative data of getting you know, questions answered and turning it into quantitative data for the technical work that we have to do. Or if we can't do that, we've been much better at what we call in this, in this space mixed methods using qualitative and quantitative data together. And so I think all of those things have really helped advance the patient-centeredness of the work that we've been doing. Well, Jason, I really appreciate that explanation. It's so needed. I mean, this convergence of health economics and value assessment, it's really at the heart of what value-based care is really about. And value assessment is such an important process to inform national and local deliberations about allocating resources and achieving the best clinical health and quality of life outcomes. And the IVI is driving innovation and value assessment through its open source value project, which is a laboratory for advancing the science and improving the practice of value assessment in the U.S. And as I understand the process for developing disease-specific value assessment models, it's been able to create an environment for collaboration, exploration, innovation. And the IVI has built various disease-specific value models, and you know, including you know rheumatoid arthritis non-small cell lung cancer, major depressive disorder. Additionally, the IVI has been working to define the principles to guide future policy and practice as we accelerate in the exploration of a systematic centralized process for review of drugs and other health interventions in the U.S. And those principles include things that you talked about, this authentic patient centricity and advancing transparency and cultivating these modernized methods and focusing on the value in, in the consideration of treatment interventions and adapting to the evolving evidence and focusing on equity and so much more. And all those overarching themes are really critical to defining best practice and applied use of value assessment and building consensus among stakeholder communities, which you talked about. And it's certainly going to be a driving force in creating more effectiveness in the value movement and bubbling up those use cases that are so relevant to the U.S. marketplace. So, Jason, I wanted to see if you could provide some more insights on the open source value project to improve the practice of disease-specific value assessment models and, and how important are guiding principles in the value assessment process also in terms of guiding the resource allocation and achievement of the best clinical health and quality of life outcomes? Yeah, that's a great, a great question, Eric. So we fundamentally at IVI, we start with our principles. Everything has to adhere to our principles. And you listed a, you know, most of them. We have nine, but the three that really we focus on are the overarching are the patient centricity, which we've talked about already, the transparency, which you mentioned, and then equity, which hopefully we'll 
have a chance to talk about that a little bit more. Um, and so everything starts with our, you know, obviously our vision and mission, which you also talked about a little bit, and our principles. You know, when IVI started, one of the things that we made sure that it was a determining factor in the work that we did, the technical work that we did, or the modeling that we did, is that first, transparency is key because there hasn't been a lot of transparency. When models have been developed and now are even still being developed, a lot of it's kind of secret, like, you know, what is behind that model? And so one of the first things we said is, you know, we need... We need to be transparent. So anything we do is going to be open source. Anybody can look at it. Anybody can criticize it. Anybody can, you know, make suggestions um, to how we how we did this. And and another part of that, which is sometimes overlooked, is that we also bring together all the stakeholders in the beginning of these processes, whatever the, you know, open source value project that we're working on. We bring everybody in from the beginning so that. You know, not only are they going to react to something later, which we want them to do, but they're also helping to determine it beforehand. And so that I think that's one of the key things that that we kind of start with that. So we're starting, you know, foundationally from that perspective so that we're not just adhering to our principles, but we're what I'd say, I guess, is we're walking the walk and not just talking the talk. And so that's kind of where where we start. You know, we we've done the uh, projects in areas, disease conditions that we think are important for several reasons. So one is there's been a lot of, at the time, there was a lot of innovation in those areas. And so because there was a lot of new innovation and some old innovation, it was good to kind of look at, you know, how do they compare to each other? And can we determine the value, you know, of, of these new interventions at the time? And so, so that was one of the determining factors. Um, as well. And so kind of that whole process, we, you know, start with, you know, not only bringing the stakeholders together and engaging them and then kind of designing the technical aspects, but also looking at, you know, why would this be important right now to do? Um, and again, it's also we, you know, we're a member organization. So we take a lot of feedback from our, our members as well and, and input from them. And, and also they're, you know, able to look at and, and utilize you know, the, the projects and the models we build, as well as the other tools that we develop. And so that's also an important uh, part of the process. Um, the other thing that we really like to do, and you mentioned this briefly about, you know, innovation is really a lot of what we do because we're looking at the value of innovation, but also we want to be innovative in our methods and in the technical work and in the science. And so as we're developing these new models, we want to incorporate kind of innovative thinking to that and so that also kind of determines what we're looking at and i bring that up with our our current disease area that we're looking at major depressive disorder because this is actually the first model we've done where we're not only looking at pharmacologic interventions you know drugs that can help the condition but also non-pharmacologic interventions and and obviously a mental health condition like depression is a a good way to look at that because we're very aware of the kind of non-medicine ways that we try to treat depression. And so that has been something that's innovative. That is, has not been looked at in a lot of disease conditions to try to combine, you know, looking at drug interventions or drug treatments as well as non-drug treatments at the same time and comparing them to each other in, in the models that we're doing. And so, so that's kind of a lot of our thinking. And then I'll, I'll finish with this. We're also kind of in a proof of concept um, mode right now with another area, which is rare disease. As you can imagine, there's, I think now over 11,000 rare diseases out there. 
that you can't build a model for every rare disease, right? That's impossible. It would take forever. But one of the things we're looking at, again, innovatively and, you know, from the technical aspect is, you know, can you develop a template for or a framework for all rare disease? Are there commonalities among most, if not all rare diseases and elements from those commonalities that you could incorporate into some sort of framework that could be applied to any rare disease and then incorporate the specificity for a specific rare disease you know, based on the patients that are in that rare disease community or have that rare disease. And, and so that, that's just something we're looking at. Again, another innovative way, but, but across, I think, all of this work, you can see that we're trying to stretch the bounds of how you actually do this sort of research and how you do this sort of modeling. And because as we found that we don't want to just do what's been done historically, which has been simple cost effectiveness analysis or budget impact. But if we're really serious about being patient centric, we have to really stretch the bounds of how we actually look at value. And that means changing the methods and trying to push the science a little bit. And one of the things that we have not adhered to has been one of the, the objections or obstacles has been brought up from the researchers has been, well, we don't, we don't have the data to actually do this, or we don't have the methods perfected to actually do this. And we've said, well, I don't think we can wait for that to happen. What can we do with what we have? And then let's kind of push on trying to get the methods better. And let's try to push to get that data. Um, and so we're, we're trying not to be limited by some of these obstacles that have been there that people raise as objections of moving this forward. And what we've tried to do again is, you know, what I just said is kind of push the boundaries on, on that and try to stretch a little bit our thinking as we try to advance these methods, realizing that, look, we know we're not there in certain areas and we might fail as we're trying to look at some of these things or they might not be as feasible as we think. But the only way we're going to advance this work is actually to try to, you know, push it forward as much as we can. Jason, I love the the examples you're giving us of this innovation. And, you know, it's kind of funny, we've done nearly 200 podcasts with leading innovators in the country. And I think that we've heard pretty much most of the terms that comprise our value lexicon, but you brought up one earlier in this conversation that was new to me. And there's another one that I learned about while reading about the IVI's work. And, and those terms are the value flower and value spillover. And as you described earlier, the value flower is a conceptual model that helps us understand and evaluate the multifaceted dimensions of value of healthcare value. And it's comprised of six interconnected petals that represent clinical effectiveness, safety, patient-centeredness, timeliness, efficiency, and equity. And then the term value spillover reflects the opportunity to capture the broader impact and benefits of healthcare interventions beyond their primary targets. I'd love to have you explain why these concepts are so important in helping us make the most informed decisions about the value of healthcare interventions and how can these constructs become more readily hardwired into healthcare organizations as they're designing and evaluating the performance of their care delivery models. Yeah, let me take the value flower first, uh, Daniel. So I think the reason why that has become so important is one, probably for several reasons, one is that it actually was developed by, you know, researchers, right? Academics, health economists who actually were willing to look beyond 
the work that they actually focus on, which is more the technical stuff and, and looking at cost and analyzing the benefits based on that cost and how that impacts whether it's government budgets or you know insurers budgets or whatever. And so the willingness to actually not only look beyond that, I think is is key because only a small part, you know, you mentioned the you know several of the of the, of the pedals there, only a small part of that is, you know, economics perspective, right? The other parts of that are actually really focused on the science and innovation as it is seen from the patient perspective. And so that's why I think it's so important you know, to focus on that because it's actually looking at different elements of value that patients have said are really important to them. And also that we can kind of look at and we've been trying to study and develop more research and evidence around, you know, how that affects how we're determining value or looking at value. And so that's why I think that's, you know, not only is it important because it came from that community, but it's been embraced kind of from the, the patient community and we're doing more and more work in that area. And it's being acknowledged as being really important, as important, if not in some cases, more important than kind of the traditional cost effectiveness and budget impact work. So, um, you know, to try to get that into kind of more of the healthcare system, I just think we we are an organization with our other organization we partner with to just continue to push on you know, the aspect of, of value and, and to also maybe di differentiate a little bit from value-based care, which is sometimes, you know, sometimes it, this is incorporated into that, but there, as you guys know, there's a lot of different ways that value is used, whether it's value-based contracting or value-based insurance design and stuff, you know, I've been involved in my whole career, but it's just different aspects of that. And so I think if we Kind of differentiate and say, look, this is another aspect of value that needs to be important if we're again going to look at things from a, the patient perspective. And and I think maybe it's more important, and and love to talk if you guys have thoughts on this. But it, I, maybe it's more important not that we have a value based healthcare system, but that we have a patient centric healthcare system because I think value will flow from that. Um, and so that's that's one thing that you know we would love to to push as well. You know, regarding kind of the spillover that you talk about. I think one of the reasons that is important is because it really looks at innovation holistically, right? We, a lot of times, look at innovation, particularly when it comes to healthcare, and even more specifically, when you look at, you know, drugs or devices or pretty defined interventions where somebody, you know, either takes something or undergoes a procedure, we just look at the immediate effect of that, right? And we say, look, Okay, they're taking a medicine. How is this valuable to them or you know the the community that has that disease, whatever that disease is? And what we're not necessarily looking at is going further upstream and looking at the development and research that went into that whatever that intervention is, whatever that medicine device procedure or whatever, and realizing that there's so much science that goes on before you actually get to whatever that product is to market. So let's just take a drug, for example, right? We know there's so much development goes on and, and a lot of that is failure. And so, you know, but there's a lot to learn from failures and there's plenty of examples within the biopharma industry of, you know, failing multiple times on a certain drug, but, you know, moving in a different direction and then developing another new innovation. And so, so it's, it's not having just, I guess, a closed mindedness about 
the intervention that we're looking at, but really looking at the effect of that innovation that can have across the whole system potentially. And that that's what we mean kind of by you know spillover. And a term that you used, which is another version of this, this kind of value spillover, is also, you know, when something benefits or improves the value from the patient perspective, that can actually translate to other benefits to that patient or to other patients um, as well. And I think one area where, you know, we can see that is around, you know, health equity and social determinants of health. And, and we can get into that a little further if you want, but I, I think that's a, just an example of, and this is going away apart from the innovation that we're talking about, but I think there are other aspects of interventions in our healthcare system that are not necessarily related to like a drug or a device, but are obviously really, really important to patients and to the healthcare system as a whole. And they can build on each other to kind of improve the value of the entire system. I think innovations like medicines and devices can contribute to that. So for example, a, a new way of administration, so it's easier, so a patient doesn't have to go to a doctor's office, they can you know, just take a pill or something like that is part of that. But it doesn't have to be. I think there are other things that you know we can look at from a from a public health or population perspective to, to do that. But definitely the, the science and the innovation part of it can contribute to that as well. So I don't know if that answered your, your full question, but but that's kind of how I think of those you know, two terms and how and why I think it's important to continue to push for those to be thought of when we're thinking about improving our healthcare system. And, and that's one of the reasons that we, you know, why as part of our vision is kind of a, we say kind of a learning healthcare system or, you know, and, and a lot of the work we do is we say a learning lab because it's continually in, in a loop trying to learn, evaluate, you know, advance kind of our education, learn, you know, continue to do that so that we can get better and better healthcare systems so that, you know, there can be better and better outcomes for patients. Well, Jason, I'm, I'm really intrigued by this coalescence of innovation and patient centricity. I mean, uh, despite all the challenges that we know well in the American healthcare system, I mean, it is a exciting time right now. I mean, we're taught we're having this conversation, for example, but we're also seeing new interventions and technologies that are constantly being developed and refined. One of the challenges, though, obviously, is that we don't always know their impacts on health and the implications for health systems. And we see that all the time in healthcare with these newly emerging technologies, uh, eventual disillusionment some, at times. I mean, when you think about the Gartner hype cycle that illustrates how new technologies become highly visible early on with the peak of inflated expectations, but over time, they eventually settle into either a trough of disillusionment or a plateau of modest production gains. And that's all too often become the reality of what many expect in healthcare. I mean, the IVI has really become a leader in advancing the science, the practice, the use of patient-centered health technology assessment or HTA in, in healthcare to remedy this. And as I understand, HTA is a systematic and multidisciplinary evaluation of the properties of health technologies and interventions that cover both their direct and indirect consequences. And it's multidisciplinary. It has aims that are really focused on determining the value, as you described, of a health technology and informs guidance 
uh, on how those technologies can be used by health systems. And it's a transparent and accountable process that can be used by decision makers and stakeholders to support the decision making process in healthcare, but also at the policy level by providing all the evidence about the the given technologies and and it, you know, as I understand, it's been described as a bridge that connects the world of research to that of policymaking. So, Jason, I wanted to see if you could describe the use of patient-centered health technology assessment and the work that IVI is doing in this space. And then, how does HTA support the broader movement to value-based healthcare that achieves those aims of improved health outcomes, affordability, better patient experience, equity, provider satisfaction, and so forth? Yeah, Eric, can I can I start with the latter to kind of address your former question? And and that is, you know, historically there hasn't really been patient-centered HTA or health technology assessment. And that's one of the reasons why IVI was created, is to actually emphasize that more. And that's just because historically you see HTA in developed countries where the healthcare system is government run and or government funded. And so it was the government that, you know, would have an HTA agency or HTA body do that assessment because they had limited budgets on what they you know, could pay for healthcare for their citizens or, or others in their healthcare system. And so, you know, they couldn't pay for everything, you know, because of the limited budget. And so they had to determine, you know, well, how much can we pay or reimburse for these interventions, whatever they are, these new innovations. And, and that's why they asked, you know, that's why these HGA agencies were formed to determine, okay, what is the value? And based on that, what, what should we be paying for those? And can we keep that within our budgets, you know, our national governmental budgets to actually do that? And so that was really the focus as, you know, as HGA body started about, you know, a little over 50 years ago, in Europe and then, you know, like in Canada and Australia, et cetera. And so that perspective was only from the payer, which was the government, their perspective. And so that created this need that we and others saw in the development of, of IVI, which was, well, you know, we need to look at actually the, the patient centeredness aspect of that. And so, so what we've been trying to do is actually push more of that within these HTA bodies. And so, you know, now, it, it's been a little different here than obviously elsewhere, just because we have a, a mixed healthcare system of public and private, and the private sector has such a large percentage of the, the patients that it insures and, and covers their, their costs and needs to be involved in discussions around payment and reimbursement. So it's a, a little bit different. We do know that individual payers in the U.S. have their own organizations internally that do a lot of the same work that HGA does, particularly as they're trying to negotiate, you know, reimbursement or payments for things such as drugs or, or devices. And so some of that is going on kind of behind the scenes that the public isn't really privy to because of a lot of this proprietary, but, but that has really been the need to actually do more of this from a patient centered perspective or a patient perspective, because it has traditionally just been, kind of the payer, you know, perspective that's done that and created a need for an organization like IVI and, and others who are trying to advance, you know, this type of work. Now, the question you ask about, you know, how can this be implemented and where has this kind of happened? I would say that, you know, we have traditionally, our organization, IVI, traditionally been U.S.-based, you know, we're formed in the U.S. and address some of the concerns in the U.S., but we have had interactions with, you know, other countries and, and internationally. And, and I would say 
not even with our kind of engagement with those, but others, particularly those in the patient advocacy community who have had discussions or conversations with HTAs in other countries like NICE and in the UK, Rickwick in Germany, as a couple of examples, is to really push them to actually look at other aspects of value that are important to patients. And so I think at the heart, their goal is still kind of the health economic perspective because they are their ultimate mission is to really determine the value of these interventions for the government who's actually paying you know, for these, for the, the patients that um, they're concerned about their healthcare. And so, but but there there have been slowly, I would say over the past probably 15 to 20 years, some additions to kind of the work that they're doing. And so some examples of that are, you know, trying to incorporate some patient perspective, trying to bring in some patient data. A lot of it is through really trying to incorporate real world evidence. So that means even after the HGA, the initial HGA work is done to provide updates to that work based on real world data, a lot of which includes patient data. And so I think that's that's one aspect as well. I think another aspect is really talking to patient communities. These organizations never really did that in the beginning. They just used whatever was in the literature and whatever the, you know, say for a drug, whatever the manufacturer of that drug provided them. They weren't really concerned about you know the other types of data that was out there regarding patient or anything from the patient perspective but i think that has changed a lot and they're willing to kind of listen to the patient or the patient community that's involved in whatever innovation or technology they're looking at and so i think there's been a gradual change to actually incorporate some of that i think the last thing that they've just started doing and and that we talked about a little bit earlier is Actually, the technical aspect, you know, how do you incorporate these other aspects of this value flower that we mentioned, like real option value, like spillover, you know, like insurance value into the actual science or the, the methods that we use to, to determine the value of these innovations. And so that has probably been the, the most recent, but the slowest way to do that, just because the science isn't there yet. And that's obviously one of the goals of our organization is to kind of advance that science so that they they could be incorporated into this work. And so that's kind of, and maybe this is kind of combining your two questions, Eric, but to, you know, I think, you know, where we've seen change has been in these areas that I mentioned to try to bring the patient perspective and, and for the research, just trying to expand their thinking about not only what value is, but how you can look at value from a technical or, or methods perspective and their willingness to, to actually do that. Um, I'll, I'll finish with kind of, bringing it back to the United States, you know, again, because of our mixed healthcare system of public and private, you know, we don't have any HTA body. There are, you know, organizations that are trying to do that. There's obviously, you know, one major organization I'm sure you're aware of that, you know, it, that does these sorts of assessments, but they're the basically only ones out there besides the individual payers. But I think there might be an opportunity or at least the beginning an opportunity from a public payer perspective, you know, with, CMS and, you know, the work around Medicare and drug negotiations. And, you know, I think some see that as an opening for the U.S. to start, you know, down this road a little bit. I think a lot's going to depend on 
many factors, CMS's willingness to, to do something like that. Obviously, you guys are aware of the lawsuits that have just been for, put forth by Merck, and I'm sure there are others will come from the industry. And so there's going to be a bunch of obstacles, but you know, we're probably at the beginning of that starting to happen, or at least consider that here in the United States. And so one of the goals that IVI has is, as we're doing that and trying to influence policy and change policy, is to make sure that, one, we're focused on the patient. And so Medicare needs to focus on their beneficiaries. That's the most important thing that they should focus on. And two, that, you know, we we have these methods that we're trying to advance and they they have to be, you know, considered uh, as we're doing this and, and the willingness to actually kind of look at things um, a little bit differently. And then I would say three is, you know, let's make this something that fits here. I don't think we need to look at other countries to, to emulate them. I think it's better to look at other countries and what they've done and learn from their mistakes and try to improve whatever we're going to do here in the U.S. if we decide to head down that path. Well, Jason, as the U.S. moves down that path toward a value-based care system, the data inputs and evidence base used to drive that shift really need to also reflect the diversity of patients and represent the different values that patients hold for their health and health care. Historically, many patient communities are underrepresented in, in the research, and they've been left out of the development of measures and methods for value assessment. So health technology assessment advances health equity when it reduces health disparities by aligning access and affordability of healthcare technologies and services with the differing needs and values of diverse patient populations, especially those who are most marginalized. And as I understand, IVI has launched a two-year initiative that aims to define the gaps in value assessment practices as it relates to equity considerations and to develop best practices and new methods for informing value that supports health equity. And this is called the Health Equity Initiative. Can you walk us through that initiative and how IVI seeks to embed health equity throughout its research projects, its educational offerings, and patient and stakeholder engagement activities? And how is this initiative catalyzing action in the development of methods and value assessment that promote equity and health access and outcomes? Yeah, it's a great question. I love to talk about this. This is, I think, one of the most exciting things that we're doing at, at IVI. I'll first start with saying, look, equity was a principle of ours even before we started on this initiative. So it was something that was really important to IVI since its you know, origins. Um, but we realized a little over a year ago that we needed to do more. You know, we were trying to incorporate and we were incorporating equity into all the work we we're doing, but we really felt like we needed an initiative to, to focus on this more specifically and also take a leadership role in this because we didn't see anyone else doing that. And so we started an initiative, as you said, tiered initiative. It started last spring. We just came up on our, our, our first year of the initiative. And, and the deliverable from that first year was synthesis report that basically put together everything we've learned over the first year around health equity and value. You know, we had a steering committee, we had, you know, round expert roundtables, we had key informant interviews. So we were really engaging all of the stakeholders about this and, and the experts in this area. And the, the key theme that came from that, which I think addresses your initial question is, you know, there is no value without equity. They are so intrinsically, you know, intertwined with each other that you can't have one without the other. And, and more importantly, you can't have value if you don't have equity. So equity has to be 
you know, a major part of anything you're doing around value in general. And, and so that's a key theme we've heard over and over again, and that's kind of the key theme uh, of the initiative. A couple other things, though, that we have learned and what we are pushing for, and I'll get to kind of the, not only the impact, but, you know, what are the implications of this work that we've done and what can we, you know, push others to do as well, is one is, you can't just kind of tweak around the edges of how you do HTA and the processes involved. You have to go way upstream and that the core of how you do HTA needs to change if we're going to incorporate equity into this. And so that's why we've called for fundamental change in how HTA processes are done. Um, and that's also why we're calling for more accountability and how it's done. We one of the things we learned, and and we some of us knew this, some of us didn't, and a lot of people I don't think knew it. This isn't new. It's you know not just health equity obviously is new, but even health equity and HTA is not necessarily new. There's been there's literature that goes back you know eight, ten, maybe twelve years, but no, nothing has come about that. And so that's one of the other main themes that came is well, no one's been held accountable for this. So we need to make sure that all the stakeholders and there's a role for all of the stakeholders in this. To, to be accountable. How can they be accountable? And that that could be, you know, with incentives, that could be with policy change. I mean, there's different ways to create accountability, but that that's another part. There needs to be that accountability. A third aspect is that, you know, as we go further upstream and we talk about fundamental change, there are power structures that need to be adjusted, right? There are certain stakeholders that have power, you know, over others and that needs to shift that there needs to be a more balanced of power. And then going back to the accountability, that those in power at all have to have accountability or there's not going to be any change that happens. And so one of the things we've talked about is there needs to be kind of a collective responsibility with all of the stakeholders to really look at things, again, from the perspective of the patient and their families and their caregivers. And a, another aspect of this is to do that, you have to actually meaningfully engage with patients and families and caregivers too. All the stakeholders have to do that from the beginning. So as you can see, there's a lot of overlap between the patient-centeredness and the, the equity component that we're talking about. A couple other things with this initiative that we've learned is that you can't wait for better data. You actually need to start with what you have and you need to push and incentivize and work for that better data. Um, and not just wait until that, you know, that missing data is present. So do what you can do now, but continually push for the data uh, that you need. And then I'm going to, the, the last thing I'll talk about is what we learned and what we're pushing for is something I mentioned earlier is that, you know, you need a mixed methods approach. You can't, again, you can't just do quantitative work. There's a lot of qualitative data that we know around equity issues, around social determinants, around things that haven't been looked at historically from a research perspective and that we do need to look at and incorporate into the into the work that we're doing. And so so that's kind of summarized a little bit of the learnings that we had and and then to address kind of your second question around you know what how can we affect change? I mean one and, and this is what we're trying to do is we're bringing all the stakeholders together to agree that yes, this is the way that we need to move forward. It cannot just be again a little change here, a little change there, adding a little thing to the processes. But we need to actually start way upstream, fundamentally change how we do this. And, and in some ways, and in some instances, we have to start from scratch about how we're doing kind of HTA. And so that's one of the things we're, we're pushing for. 
Um, the other thing is we laid out um, in our synthesis report kind of the four different areas that you know we had to really look at or aspects that we had to look at. And so so we and there's a bunch of recommendations in our report, but what we're doing now is we're fleshing those out, those four different areas that we're looking at and going a little deeper into those and really looking at what are specific things that that you know we can do and not only what they are, but who can be involved in those specific things. So an easy kind of one or one that you hear a lot of is so for the manufacturers, right, or the researchers, make sure that your clinical trials are more diverse and have more diverse populations. You know, we need that data that we haven't had traditionally. Um, but there are other ones that, you know, might not be <laughs> as uh, obvious. And that is, you know, from a payer perspective, you know, why not have a diverse patient advisory group or even a community advisory group from whatever community you serve to bring them in and have conversations about, you know, whether it's a huge health plan, you know, or a, another sort of payer that, you know, not only insurers, but maybe has providers as part of their network as well, to listen to what the needs of the community are. So you can look at those, you know, plans, health plans and insurers are actually looking into more of these sorts of things because they're realizing the costs that are being incorporated into their work because they're not looking at these. And so not only are they seeing worse outcomes in their patients, but they're also seeing the associated higher costs related to those. And so they understand that, look, if I'm going to address, you know, my patient community and not just look at their medical care, there are many other aspects that affect their outcomes. And so I need to help address some of those too. An example of that is like, you know, insurers starting to pay for transportation, for example, for their, the patients that they, you know, insure. And so that's another kind of kind of recommendation that you know we have in there. But again, you know, if we want to talk about more examples, I'm happy to, but there's a whole bunch of list of recommendations. And and the 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 last thing I'll say about this is as we push out more and more information and talk about more and more recommendations of what people are doing, what we are also doing as we take a lead in this is not just talking about it and not just putting materials, you know, regarding it out there for people to learn about but actually being proactive in partnering with the other stakeholders to actually commit to making these changes and trying in our own little way, you know, we don't have a lot of leverage, but trying in our own little way to make folks accountable. And then also pushing those who have more power to, for accountability, you know, like the actual kind of plans or like even academic institutions or these researchers work or like, you know, the federal government who oversees, you know, obviously the, the Medicare and Medicaid and VA systems as well to, to create incentives or, or other sort of uh, accountability mechanisms in place through policy change to actually, you know, advance that. We're fortunate enough that a lot of these organizations already realize the importance of health equity. And just one example, I mean, CMS in their strategic plan, the first pillar is health equity. And so we think we have a really good partner there with the folks that oversee Medicare and Medicaid to actually advance some of this work. And we're hoping to, to do that with others as well. Well, Jason, another area of focus for the IVI has been the, the study of health economic burden on people in the U.S. And according to the Peterson KFF tracker, Americans owe nearly $195 million in medical debt. And these financial burdens are worse for middle-aged and BIPOC people. 
especially those dealing with chronic disease. And, you know, we all know chronic disease, uh, it's costing our economy about a trillion dollars annually. And when health researchers measure the economic impacts on people in the healthcare system, they often focus on direct medical costs like hospital bills, co-pays, deductibles. However, patients and caregivers experience a wider range of economic impacts, such as transportation to receive care, ability to work, or behavioral health concerns. And the IVI and Academy Health recently partnered to develop a framework for researchers and value assessors and other decision makers to address that full range of economic impact and research studies and decision-making. I mean, there were six areas like, of course, the direct cost, but then the non-clinical healthcare costs, caregiver and family impacts, ability to work, education, job impacts. So Jason, I wanted to see if you could provide your perspective on the economic burden of American healthcare and why we need to account for underlying factors such as those social drivers and other things. And and how can the how can research conducted by the Economic Impacts Project be utilized to inform policy decisions looking to address this formidable economic challenge inflicting our most vulnerable of citizens? Yeah, thanks for that question. Yeah, that, that report was just released, something we're really excited about. I think to kind of answer that, I want to give a little bit of background. I, I'll try not to get too technical in the, the policy speak, but, you know, PCORIA, the Patient-Centered Outcome Research Institute, which was created with the Affordable Care Act, it was, you know, tasked to actually look and basically fund those who were looking at comparative effectiveness. And when it was um, in the process of reauthorization in 2019, you know, there's still a lot of resistance doing cost-effectiveness work from the government perspective, and, and obviously that applied to PCORIA as well. And so, so they didn't want to do that. But one of the things that everyone could agree on is that Corey could look at economic impacts. What are the other non-medical economic impacts? So not looking at cost effectiveness, but looking at those economic impacts that affect patients and affect their care. And so as part of that, um, you know, they were funding work in this area. And so we were able to do, you know, this work, as you said, in partnership with Academy Health with, you know, a grant from Corey to, to actually do this, to actually look at a framework. And, and they really want a framework so that as they advance kind of our knowledge in this area and hopefully changes that are needed in this area, you know, it can be looked at from a research perspective in, in similar ways. And so, so, you know, this work was great. You mentioned kind of the six areas. You know, I think where this really comes in is, you know, realizing that in the same way that a lot of our health and our health outcomes is not necessarily just determined by medical care, right? We know a lot of it is, you know, public health, a lot of it's our genes, a lot of it's social determinants, stuff like that. I think in the same way, we also realize that the health outcomes of, of us as patients is not just, you know, and the costs related to those is not just direct medical costs. There's other costs that we you know, see every day. And those are the areas that were defined in this framework. And so that that's where I think it's important because when we look at all the stakeholders whose goal or whose role and goal is to improve health outcomes for all of us, right? Those are also the things that need to be looked at. You know, we can't just focus on say one sixth you know, I'm, I'm sure the proportions aren't exact, but if you have six different things and only one of them is direct medical costs, you just can't focus on that. If you really want to improve health outcomes in the overall health journey 
of, of patients and families and caregivers. And so you really need to look at these other things and also be willing to, you know, pay for those and, and try to actually intervene in those different areas to, to help improve kind of overall uh, health outcomes. So I, I think that's why this has become so important because our health is not just direct medical care and our health costs are not just direct medical healthcare costs, whether it's at a doctor's or a hospital or, or paying for drugs or you know tests or whatever. So, so I think the, there's a lot of parallels between that. A couple other things I want to note about this project is there's so much overlap with this and, and health equity, just because what we have found in the, in the work when we look at these kind of the non-medical economic impacts to patients is that there's a lot of underlying equity factors, right? Whether it's social determinants or social drivers we talked about, whether it's the different kind of complexity of the diseases, and we know that different diseases affect different ethnic and racial populations differently. And so that's a part of it as, as well. Um, a lot of it depends on diagnoses, right? And we know that certain communities don't get diagnosed until later with certain diseases. And that obviously makes it more difficult to, to improve their health outcomes in those diseases as well. Even access to, we're not even talking about in, in innovations, but just access to care in general. There's obviously equity factors there. And all of those have an impact on these other economic things that we're looking at besides direct medical costs. And so, so that's, I think, why this is really important. And getting kind of to your, your the other part of your question about, you know, making policy change. I mean, I think there's several things that we can do. One is we just talked about um, earlier in the conversation about we're seeing those who help pay for medical costs also consider paying for these other economic impacts or these other costs that we're, we, we know that are important. And so their willingness to kind of step up and look step up and look at the patient holistically and realize, look, I, I can't just improve their medical care and pay for that, but I need to consider these other things. I think that's one thing that they're actually doing on their own. And I think there's some, you know, incentives to do that as well. I think the other thing is it's also driving the need to actually partner with patients and caregivers and their families as they identify what are the priorities for the patient in their entire healthcare journey, right? What does it mean to them to, you know, improve their own outcomes? Because you could have, say, cancer, for example, and of course they want to be treated and say, you know, whether it's surgery or chemotherapy or something like that, but they also, you know, there are other important things as well to them, whether it's, you know, time they're going to be able to spend with their, their family as they're getting treatment, whether it's things as their appearance, if they start, you know, having changes in their appearance, losing their hair, you know, addressing stuff like that. And then we mentioned other things like, you know, getting to treatment centers. And sometimes, depending on what type of disease or condition you have, there might not be, uh, and, and where you live, there might not be a treatment center that's within a couple hours, you know, it might be several hours away. And that takes away time, you know, it takes away, you know, productivity, if you have to leave work for a day, you know, if you are working. And so, so I think all of those things are really important to know for the other stakeholders that are involved in kind of caring for these patients in, in their healthcare journey. Um, you know, the last thing I would say is at a larger policy level, I think, you know, the, the, whether it's state or federal government needs to look at, you know, how can we impact these other economic impacts besides just looking at our healthcare system? You know, what can we do 
can we incentivize in certain ways, you know, whether it's Medicare or even private insurance to, to make sure that they look at certain things. Um, as we get greater understanding or try to get greater understanding of the effects of these different economic impacts, can we incentivize just kind of the collection of data so that we can have a, a more broad understanding uh, of these impacts? And so as we try to learn more about them through research and, and affect change, you know, can we incentivize that? Um, and then can we incentivize, I would say, more partnerships, you know, public-private partnerships between the stakeholders, like the government or government agencies and, you know, nonprofit associations and researchers to, to come together and kind of convene and talk more about how all the stakeholders can kind of work together um, in these areas. I think what we do need to remember is, though, is that, you know, these are personal to, to each patient. That's the first impact is kind of a personal impact on, on folks. Um, and it affects a lot of them, you know, beyond just their health, but, you know, their emotional state, their financial state, you know, a lot of times who they see themselves as, you know, a person within a family, you know, as a parent, as a child, as a spouse, as a sibling, et cetera. And so I just want to make sure as we talk about this, that when we talk about policy change and things that we can do to further kind of not only knowledge of this, but how we can make changes to these impacts and improve these impacts that to, to patients, these are personal first and, and we can't forget that as we're making these changes so that we don't have unintended consequences as we're trying to improve, you know, how these impacts affect, you know, patients, families, and caregivers. Jason, well, you've obviously had such a wide breadth of experience in healthcare as a physician, a public health expert, and a healthcare economist. And and you've worked in the health policy and public health sectors with pharmaceutical and nonprofit organizations. And even though your experiences in healthcare have been so wide ranging, there's a common thread, and you just referenced it in, in the, your last response, which is collaboration. And the virtue of collaboration is at the heartbeat of value-based care. And it's what we're all about at the Institute for Advancing Health Value. By fostering partnerships, healthcare stakeholders unite their expertise and their resources and perspectives and can drive innovation and improve outcomes for delivering patient-centered value-based care. And as we wrap up our conversation today, can you leave us with your parting thoughts on what collaboration means to you and how that drives your leadership in value-based care? And if it's true that mankind can accomplish anything when in collaboration, how can we come together during these difficult times to reshape our American healthcare in solidarity with one another? That's a great question to end with. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. You know, we have we cannot do things solo or even just smaller groups. We need all of the stakeholders to kind of come together. You know, IVI very much sees itself as a convener. And one of our major roles is bringing stakeholders together to talk about these issues. But more important than just convening is building those partnerships and collaborations and moving from that convening to an agreement that we're going to work on these things uh, together. I think there's several reasons why not only it's important, but why you can really only achieve significant things through that sort of process. You know, one is everybody provides a different perspective. And so if you're not collaborating, you're going to miss not only that perspective, but you're going to miss that sort of thinking and problem solving and looking at ways that you might not be looking at it. 
as you mentioned, I've been fortunate to kind of wear several different hats, but, but as I have worn different hats, I've actually learned so much about viewing things from whatever the perspective of that new hat is and how much and previously I didn't do that or, you know, was unaware or was just kind of ignorant of, of that perspective. And so I think that's why it's really important to, to, to do those collaborations, because if not, you're either going to miss things that are important or significant, or you're just going to kind of fail. It's not going to, you know, you might have some small successes, but you're not going to be able to have big perspectives, big, sorry, big successes, because you're going to miss certain things. You're not going to be able to, to do certain things. So, so that's some of the, the main reasons why I think, you know, collaboration is really important. Uh, another reason I would say is, in a lot of different aspects in our society, there has been collaboration, but there have been stakeholders that haven't been present, whether that's for, you know, historic reasons, whether that's equity reasons, you know, whether that's, you know, we just kind of sometimes don't think about underserved populations or minority populations or whatever it is, you know, and, and we've seen kind of not only have we not been as successful as we can be, but there have been unintended consequences of even some of those collaborations because we weren't considering kind of all of the perspectives. And so that's another thing kind of tying this all back to one of the principles we have around equity is that, you know, you need to bring in everybody, uh, particularly those that historically they haven't been brought in. And so that's another reason why I think we're only going to get as far as we do based on how strong and how large these collaborations and, and working together are. The other thing is, and maybe I'll end with this when we talk about our healthcare system and making major changes to our healthcare system, which you, know, you guys are, are doing work to advance that, we're trying to do work to uh, advance that, is that you know everybody kind of has their own stake in this. And there are things that are important to them and if you don't consider those, you're not going to get buy-in and we're not going to be able to advance the, you know, the changes that we want. We're not going to be able to improve the system if one or two groups are holding back because nobody actually talked to them or thought to address their concerns. Uh, and so I, I actually don't think we're actually going to be able to move things as, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why we haven't been able to move certain things forward enough because people aren't willing to, to listen to one another. And, and I'm going to use that to kind of segue into the other part of your question is, you know, things are very polarizing now. One of the things that we've experienced in the initiatives that we work in, because we convene all the stakeholders together is, you know, when you really sit down with people, even people that you might have disagreements with, but listen to their perspective, I, you can't help but have a greater understanding uh, of where they are. And so, so the, I've been kind of part of some of these conversations of, you know, the willingness to kind of listen to, to perspectives that are different, um, the willingness to actually kind of push back against a lot of the misinformation that's also coming out, which I think has been kind of harmful as trying to bring multiple sides together um, and trying to build more trust in our system, which I think is another way to kind of help bring people together, um, just to, the willingness to, to be open to hearing from people and and understanding that what they're saying is coming from a, a position of you know, willingness to share and a, a willingness to, to trust as well um, from what they're hearing. And so, so I think that's the only way we're going to be able to advance. It's not just a willingness to collaborate and partner, but a willingness to listen to those that in different circumstances might be considered kind of enemies and not allies and to try to view everybody as 
an ally because we all, I think when you come down to it, have the same goal, right? We want to do what's best for patients, families, caregivers, ours and others. And we want society as a whole to be better. And that I think means to be healthier. Um, and that can be determined in many different ways, not just physical health, but you know, that's what we all want. We want a better society for everybody. And the only way we're going to do that is by working together. I know it sounds a little Pollyannish and I don't, I don't mean to, to kind of end that way, but, but I, I totally agree with what you just said, right? That, you know, meaningful change only happens when people are working together to push that change forward. And I think the best way to do that is to bring all of the stakeholders together to talk about what we can all do together to get to the common goal or goals that we're trying to, to achieve. Well, it's like Mahatma Gandhi once said, you have to be the change that you see in the world. Uh, Jason, you're living that out. The IVI is doing great work. How can people find out more about IVI and stay apprised of the research and the educational offerings and the, the peer learning and uh, ultimately um, support you in, in this uh, Herculean effort to really create a, a truly patient-centered healthcare system? Yeah, thanks for that question. I would say first and foremost, go to our website, which is uh, www.thevalueinitiative.org. A lot of information there, a lot of materials there, information about events that we have or that are you know upcoming, all the projects that we're doing. You know, we do also have a social media pre presence. The largest is probably on LinkedIn. So if any of the listeners you know are LinkedIn, you know, follow us, and everything will be kind of sent your way. And then. You know, I don't know if people have my contact information, but you know, I'm happy for anyone to, to reach out to me directly. You know, you can find my information at the website as well, but I'm happy to talk to anybody that you know is interested in these same things and, and wants to kind of work or partner with us to, to help advance them. And so um, so yeah, thanks, you know, thanks for this opportunity and to talk about the work that we're doing. And I'm glad we have partners like you guys that we have kind of a common mission to kind of to drive you know, our system more towards uh, where it should be. And that's, you know, focusing on the patients and and the value that we can all provide um, to them. Absolutely. And I, I just wanted to thank you, Jason, for uh, joining us this week on the Race to Value podcast and and doing what you do and the, your team there at the IVI. It, it's been um, a great privilege to showcase that work. And, you know, we're all in this together, you know, trying to uh, create a better system. You know, thanks for sharing your insights with our audience this week. Great. Thanks, Eric. This is this was great. Um, you guys, I, I was listening to several of their podcasts. You have great guests, great conversations. So I appreciate all the work that you guys are doing as well.